Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Psalm 97. This psalm is part of a cluster of psalms running from Psalm 93 through Psalm 100, exploring the theme of Yahweh's kingship over all the earth. Now, we're not sure who wrote it. The Septuagint ascribes it to David, but that was later, and not everybody agrees with that. It doesn't really matter. What matters is how we are supposed to understand it. Is it talking about the reign of God as manifested on Mount Sinai and as instituted through the people of Israel in the Old Testament? Or is it looking forward to the coming of God's kingdom at some point in the future? Basically, we're asking, is it descriptive or prophetic? And of course, it could be both. The psalmist could be speaking prophetically in the spirit through the language and imagery associated with the history of God's manifestation at Sinai. Given that God doesn't change, who he is, is how he was and how he will be in the future. The line between history and prophecy is a great deal thinner in the Bible than it often is in our contemporary thinking. Generally speaking, this psalm has been understood as messianic by most Christian interpreters. Martin Luther, for example, said, Like the preceding, this also is a prophecy concerning Christ and his kingdom. Quote. I think that's true. But I don't think that necessarily answers the question of whether it is essentially descriptive or prophetic. Are we talking about the reign of Christ now? Or are we talking about the reign of Christ which is to come? The grammar in the opening verse inclines me to think that it is both. The opening verse declares, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. The first verb there is in the perfect. The Lord reigns. Or as the old King James Version had it, The Lord reigneth. Hebrew perfects don't always translate easily into English. They refer to a completed action as opposed to an action in process. So the first verb describes something that is. The Lord reigneth. He is doing that now. But then the next two verbs are Hebrew imperfects, meaning they describe action in process. The earth rejoices. The coastlands are becoming glad. So the sense is of a kingdom that is and is spreading, a kingdom that is and is descending. And all the effects on the earth, positive and negative, are the result of that dynamic. Derek Kidner says memorably here, this psalm shows the awesome approach of a conqueror, closed quote. I think that is exactly right. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, 
and all the peoples see his glory. The approach of King Yahweh is a totally transformative reality. It is joy for some and despair for others, depending on their orientation. Those who are opposed to his rule are burnt up. Those who have been watching for it are raised up. But none are unaffected. The earth sees and trembles. That the mountains melt like wax may be a literal statement. We think, for example, of what Peter said in 2 Peter 3.12 about the coming of the Lord. He said, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. The coming of the Lord is catastrophic. So it, it may mean that. Or it may be a poetic way of saying that all opposition crumbles before the advance of King Yahweh. W.S. Plumer takes it that way. He says, Often by hills or mountains, we are to understand political powers or states. Nothing can stand in opposition to God. Closed quote. The invasion of this kingdom will turn the world upside down. That's what the psalm is saying. Literally, metaphorically, politically, spatially, however you want to think of that. The invasion of this kingdom is going to turn this world upside down. Verse 7. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. When the Lord comes, all those who have worshipped idols will be ashamed. Tim Keller says here, Idols are often good things that have become ultimate sources of meaning. Good things need not be removed from our lives, but their place within our hearts must be transformed. Close quote. You don't want to be worshipping money, or your job, or your wife, or your kids, when Jesus comes. You want to be worshiping Jesus. And if you are not, you will be ashamed. Everybody will be worshiping Jesus that day. Even the angels, the apostle to the Hebrews, actually makes that point in Hebrews 1.6 by quoting from the last half of this psalm, Psalm 97.7. He says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, I've mentioned before that the Hebrew word Elohim has a broader semantic range than our English word God or God's. It can mean God, it can mean false God, it can mean angel, whether good or bad, and it can even mean human magistrate. And as Jesus reminds his critics in John 10, 35, it can actually, in a very limited sense, even apply to human beings who have received and embraced the word of God. So every time that word is used in the Old Testament, we have to consider the context. We have to understand how it is being used. Here, however, we are marvelously held by the fact that an apostle of Jesus quotes it and translates it in the New Testament. The apostle here in Hebrews 1.6 is either translating it freehand or quoting it from the LXX, the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. In either case, he cites it as referring to angels. He says, let all God's angels worship him. So, all controversy here is removed. What Psalm 97.7 is saying is that when the Lord comes, the first thing you're going to do is throw away your idol. You will be ashamed of it. You will disavow it. You're going to try and bury it in your backyard on that day. There will be no pluralism on that day. Every man, woman, and child on planet Earth and every angel in heaven or in hell is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father forever. So you want to be ready for that. Zion is ready, the psalmist says, verse 8. Zion hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. 
You are exalted far above all gods. The immediate sense here seems to be that Zion or Jerusalem, or more broadly, the people of God in the Old Testament, are developing a taste for the judgments of God, as it were. The more they see how he administers his territory, the more eagerly they await the full consummation of his kingdom. Verse 10, Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. The Hebrew is even more direct here. Lovers of God, hate evil. For what fellowship hath light with darkness? Verse 10, He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Derek Kidner, again, is very helpful here. He says, preserves would be better rendered guards or watches over. It is a promise of God's defense and watchful care, not a guarantee against casualties, closed quote. As this psalm indicates, the invasion of God's kingdom will be catastrophic. There will be casualties. There will be martyrs. There will be blood. But not a drop of it will go unnoticed. He watches over and he rescues out of. Therefore, our confidence should be that of Daniel's three brave friends in Babylon. When faced with the prospect of being cast alive into the fiery furnace, they declared, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Daniel's friends expected deliverance, but the how and the when they left to the providence of God, and we should do likewise. Verse 11, light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Willem van Gemmeren is helpful here. Speaking of the people of God, the righteous, he says, they already experience some evidences of his kingship here on earth, but eagerly await the fullness of his kingdom, even while praising him, closed quote. And I think that's exactly right. We mustn't wait for the fullness of things to begin singing the praise of our coming king. That is something we have ample reason to begin attending to immediately. Thanks be to God. The RMM plan has us reading two psalms today, so open your Bibles, or keep them open if you have one, to Psalm 98. There are three movements in this psalm. In verses 1 to 3, there is a celebration of a great victory. In verses 4 to 6, there is a hymn of praise to the great king. And then in verses 7 to 9, there is an anticipation of his ultimate and glorious triumph. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning with the brief ascription. A psalm. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. As I mentioned, these first three verses are generally understood as originally referring to an actual historical victory. The psalm begins by looking back. But as is so often the case in the psalms, looking back inspires looking forward. History becomes prophecy. And immediate triumph becomes a pattern for ultimate salvation. And indeed, that is how this psalm has typically been understood. Willem van Gemmeren describes the process this way. He says, The historical situation was 
dehistoricized. And the psalm has now an eschatological dimension, closed quote. Luther is even more straightforward. He says simply, this again is a prophecy concerning the preaching of Christ and the spread of his kingdom, closed quote. And so we must keep our head on a swivel, as it were, as we read through this psalm. We, we can think of a great victory in the past, the triumph of Israel over some regional antagonist, and we can see in that story the anticipation of God's ultimate triumph over our ultimate enemies through the life, death, resurrection, and preaching of Jesus Christ. And like the psalmist, we can break forth in praise. That's where the psalm goes next. Verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Matthew Henry says here, The setting up of the kingdom of Christ is here represented as a matter of joy and praise. Let him be welcomed to the throne as new kings are with acclamations of joy and loud shouts till the earth ring again as when Solomon was proclaimed. And let the shouts of the crowd be accompanied with the singers and players on instruments as is usual in such solemnities. Closed quote. If the psalmist was led to praise by the victories of God in the Old Testament, then of course, how much more should we be led to praise by the victories of God in the New and likewise, if the victories of God in the Old Testament inspired the psalmist to contemplate the ultimate victory that was to come, how much more should the victory of God through Christ lead us to confidence in his soon and climactic coming? To quote Henry again, the work of our salvation by Christ is a work of wonder. The more it is known, the more it will be admired, Close quote. And thanks be to God. Verse 7, let the sea roar and all that fills it. The world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. What begins with Israel must not be confined to Israel. W.S. Plumer says here, So great a redemption as that wrought out by Christ cannot be sufficiently lauded by a few nor rewarded by the faith and love of one tribe or people, closed quote. And of course, one is reminded here of Isaiah 49, 6, wherein the Lord declares that the work of his servant will spread far beyond the boundaries of ethnic Israel, bringing salvation even to the ends of the earth. God says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth, closed quote. That is what is being spoken of here. And that is what is being celebrated here by all creation. The people rejoice. The rivers clap their hands. The hills sing for joy together before the Lord, before their king who comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. We think here, of what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 8, 9-24, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know 
that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, close quote. And that is precisely the hope that is being celebrated here. The psalmist considers the restoration of the nation in some past historical deliverance and is led to anticipate a far greater restoration that will include people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. And even more than that, the rivers, the hills, the rocks, and even the trees. That's what this psalm is about. It is about hope for a much better world. And it is no blind hope. It is a hope based on who God is and how he has acted in the past to save, redeem, and restore his people. It, it is a hope based on what he said he would do in the future. He said he would come back. He said he would cleanse the world with fire. He said he would judge, restore, remake, and renew. The New Testament ends with that hope. These are the last words in the Bible, friends. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.